This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. This morning, we are going to begin the final section of Paul's letter that he wrote to the churches in Galatia that we're looking at in our sermon series, What Makes Us Family. And if you're new, just join us or maybe missed a bit. Let me kind of catch you up in these first two sections. He began showing us how our faith in Jesus Christ makes us family. Nothing more, nothing less. That's the theme of the letter that is the big idea of our series, right? Faith is what defines us and faith is what unites us. It's what unites us to God as his children and what unites us to each other as family. And Paul, he's writing this letter because not long after he left, not long after he planted these churches, a group of, of Jewish Christians, they came in after and they were like, yeah, no. That's like the most Midwestern phrase ever, isn't it? That and, oh, yeah, no. They're like, that's not actually true, right? Faith, faith is necessary, but it's not enough. There's more to the story. And lucky for you, we're here to tell you the rest of the story. Like there's more you need to do to be accepted by God. There's more you need to be, do to be included in his family. You also, you also need to adhere to certain aspects of the Mosaic Law. Specifically, like, guys, you got to be circumcised. That is our mark. And, and you also need to abide by certain aspects of our culture. You've got uh, you to observe our food laws. You've got to celebrate our holy days. And so Paul, he closes chapter 2 reminding them that a person is not justified, right? We are not accepted by God and we are not included in his family by works of the law, by what you do but through faith in Jesus Christ and what he did for you. That's a significant claim that he's making, a claim that he supports in the second section of the letter with, with evidence throughout chapters 3 and 4, like, a, like an attorney in, in, a, in a courtroom. And last week, he, he gave his closing arguments, so to speak, of our resulting freedom in Christ. And that then brings us this morning to this third and final section, chapters 5 and 6, showing how we are to respond to everything that he has taught us, how we are to live this out, living in freedom, we're going to see this morning, living by the Spirit, we're going to see next week, and then living for the good of others, as we're going to see in chapter 6. And so if you haven't already, because you were so distracted by the really cute scripture reader this morning... Why don't you go ahead and grab your Bibles and let's open them up to the New Testament book of Galatians. We're going to be in chapter 5 in the first 15 verses this morning as we begin this final section in a sermon called Living in Freedom. Living in Freedom. This morning we're going to see how in Christ like we are free. Free from the burdens of the law we're going to see and that worry of being enough and free from the bondage of sin and the weight of those chains that enslave us. And so if you're taking notes, number one, write this down. In Christ, we are free from the burden of the law. We are free from the burden of the law. Last week, uh, Paul, he kind of concluded this allegorical telling of the story of, of Hagar and Sarah saying in verse 31 that, uh, that we are not children of the slave, or we are not children of Hagar, but of the free woman of, of Sarah. We are no longer enslaved to the old covenant of law. We are free in the new covenant of grace. And he continues that theme of freedom into the opening verse of chapter 5. Look down here with me where he says in verse 1, he says, For freedom Christ has set us free. 
Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Freedom might be one of our country's favorite words. Would you agree? That was good. In unison, everything. No, it is one of our country's favorite words. We are, we are a nation founded on the notion of freedom. Right? The, the first amendment to the Constitution, the first list of whoopsies that we needed to add to it, they were all about freedom, weren't they? Freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of press, freedom to peaceably assemble. It's because there's, there's this innate longing within our being to have these burdens placed upon us lifted. Right to have the, the chains that enslave us broken, and if we think back, like the colonists, right? They desired freedom from authority, didn't they? They 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 desired to be free from these burdens that King George was placing on them: taxes, 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 and more taxes and restrictions. And here we are, a couple hundred years later, and not much has changed. Like just look at our adolescence, right? Our entire adolescence. And I'm about to get an amen from this section right here, because you know what's coming. Our entire adolescence has lived longing for freedom, isn't it, buddy? To be free. We want to be free to drive wherever we want, don't we, when we get our license? We want to be free from the burden of homework. Amen. When we graduate, we want to be free and, and liberated from the shackles of our parents' way too early and unfair curfew when we move out. We can stay up as late as we want now. What happens, though, is you realize you actually can't stay up as late as your curfew when you were a kid. You fall asleep sooner. Man, we want to eat what we want, watch what we want, date whomever we want, spend money however we want, get a dog if we want. We form this very individualistic view of freedom, though, haven't we? Freedom to us is the ability to do whatever we want, whenever we want, the way that we want with whomever we want. But there's another side to this, and what we know is that not all have been afforded the freedoms that our nation was supposedly founded on, as some simply desire freedom from oppression, longing to be liberated from the, the literal chains that enslaved them. And, and even to this day, many in our world continue to be exploited, longing for freedom from oppression, from the burdens forced upon them. And this is the freedom that Paul's referring to here. Not, not freedom from authority, but freedom from oppression. Because our situation is more like that of a slave whom Christ set free from a yoke of slavery than an angry colonist or adolescent. And Jesus set us free. But free from what? Right, what is this yoke of slavery he's referring to here? It's the burden of the Mosaic law, what he's been talking about throughout this letter. And we, we all live under the weight of burdens placed upon us, don't we? We all live under a weight of burden. We all live under the weight of, of expectations of, of, of what we are to do, of how we are to live, of who it is we are to be. And God, God's got high expectations of his people, doesn't he? He's got high expectations, and the, the Mosaic law, it, it detailed the way his people were to live. They were to, be, they were to be holy. They were to be set apart from the rest of the world. The Mosaic law, it was what defined God's people, and it is what united God's people, both to God and to each other. 
The law is what made them family. And at the top of the list of these 613 rules and regulations in the Mosaic law was the mark of the covenant, was circumcision, right? That, that men were to be circumcised bearing this mark of the covenant that God had made with, uh, with Abraham in Genesis 17. Circumcision was in some way, it was like their Costco card, right? You walk into Costco and you got to show your card to get in. Uh, have you ever tried to get into Costco without the card? Does that work? I'm just asking because I can't find my card. It does. You can get in. Okay. Like, I can't buy anything, but let's be honest. You just want to go look at all the stuff. Okay, so it's like your, it was like their Costco card. They showed it to get in the door. It showed it was their identification as, as, as Jewish men, as sons of Abraham, as members of God's family. And the best part was, like, I forget my Costco card. They didn't forget this Costco card. But the law... The law was a heavy burden placed on them. It was an oppressive yoke. It held God's people captive. It imprisoned them under the old covenant, Paul said back in chapter 3. It was a, a guardian that watched over them until Christ came. But he says in chapter 4 that when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son on, on like the ultimate rescue mission. Better than any Mission Impossible movie you've ever seen. And through the incarnation, right, the divine word who was in the beginning with God, as God, he became flesh. Born of a woman, born under the law, he says. He, he came to us as one of us to dwell among us. Like, why? Why did he do that? Well, he says in chapter 3, to redeem us from the curse of the law, right, to free us from that oppressive burden, Okay, so that's the why, but how? Well, he goes on to say, by becoming a curse for us, right? By fulfilling the law. Hung on a tree, nailed to the cross, right? Securing our freedom through his death. Removing the yoke of slavery by taking it on himself. And now, in Christ, we are free from the burdens of the Mosaic law. Amen? If you've looked at all 613 of those rules and regulations, it's a big amen. We're free. We're free from the weight of these expectations. We're free from the worry on if we've done enough, if we are good enough for God. Instead, what we know is that we only need to receive this free gift of grace that God has given us and believe in Jesus Christ by faith. And there is nothing else that you need to do in order to be accepted by God, to be included in his family. And think of how liberating that must have felt to these Gentile Christians, the people of Galatia after these outsiders had come in, how liberating it must have been. But at the same time, think how confusing it must have been because it was so conflicting. What Paul taught and what the outsiders taught were so different. And, and so Paul, after this reminder, he, he reassures them with two commands here, showing us and showing them how to live in this freedom. And first he says, stand firm. Stand firm. Like living in freedom is a bit of a balancing act. You know those, those, those guys that they have at, at car dealerships that are flailing in the wind? Like that's kind of like us. Uh, it, we're uh, we're kind of like a, we're a toddler as they start to walk. No, side note, no one ever tells you, there's not like that moment when your child goes from not walking to walking. It's more of like, was that the step? Was, was that it? You know what? We didn't get that one on video. We got this one on video. So this is the first step. Uh, but even then, like, they're a wobbly little mess, 
And, uh, or, and then they start riding their bike, and when you take the training wheels off, that's a wobbly mess with some skin knees. And that's kind of how we are in freedom. We wobble. And it's easy for us to fall on, on one side or the other, falling on one side, uh, abusing our freedom and, and rejecting any sort of authority. But it's also easy for us to lose our freedom and return to oppression. And so the second thing that he says here is do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't do it. Is that really necessary to say, Paul? Like, we got freed. You really think we're going back? I mean, whoever would voluntarily go back to prison? You know, who, who would ever voluntarily go back into slavery? Who, who growing up after you got let out of timeout by your mom went back into the corner? It's like, no, I'm good. I'm going to hang here, staring at the wall. Like, you don't do that. But they would. And they would do it either by returning to their former pagan ways, right? Enslaved by those that are by nature not gods, he said back in chapter 4, trying to, trying to please their, their former pagan gods. They would do it by returning or they would do it by listening to these outsiders that had come in and enslaving themselves to the Mosaic law. Enslaving themselves to Jewish culture in hopes of that making them enough, in hopes of that being pleasing enough to God to be accepted and included. They would do it. And the thing is, we do it too. Because we're skeptical, aren't we? Like, we know when something sounds too good to be true. We're filled with doubts. Like, it's got to be a catch, right? What's the catch? What's the catch? What's the string attached to it? We got questions, right? What, what am I missing here? Can you go through that again? Can we look through the fine print? Can I actually read that uh, terms and conditions that are 14 pages long in legalese before I sign the software agreement? Because you know what? What we really believe deep down is that there's no way God could ever accept us because of who we are, because of what we've done. We know we're not enough. And so we typically respond to this in, in, in one of two ways. In, in some sense, sometimes we, we respond out of pride, don't we? We respond out of pride thinking, you know what? I'm going to make myself better. Today's the day. I'm going to make myself better. I'm going to be enough for God. And God, he's going to be so proud of me. He's going to be so impressed with all that I've done. And so we work harder and we do more and all you've done is submitted yourself to a yoke of slavery that you carved with your own hands and placed on yourself. Bearing burdens that you've created. Sometimes we respond out of pride. Other times I think we respond out of fear. Thinking, I don't stand a chance. I'll never be enough. I can never overcome all that I've done. I'll never be able to live up to these expectations. And so rather than trusting in God, we, we return back to what was familiar, even if it was dangerous, even if it's not good for us, even if it's harmful to us, voluntarily submitting again to the same yoke of slavery that Christ came to free us from, placing those chains on ourselves. See, here's the thing. You're never going to be free if you are always worried about what you have to do and who you have to be in order to be enough for God. You will never be free if you live under that burden. And so what he's calling us to is rather than responding in fear or responding in pride, he's calling us to respond with confidence, standing firm in, in, in a broad place, 
Standing firm in the freedom that Christ secured for you, free from the pressure to conform to everyone's expectations, the expectations of others, the expectations of yourself. Free from that pressure and free from the worry of worrying if you are enough for God. Worrying if you are going to ever be accepted by God, knowing God's got you. Amen? He's got you. We are that wobbly toddler. We are that wobbly kid riding a bike without training wheels. But guess what? God's got you. And you're going to wobble, but he ain't ever going to let you fall, is he? He's not going to let you fall. What Paul's saying here is so important. He says the same thing two more times. He clarifies in verse 2. He says, look, I, Paul, did you catch the way Ethan said that this morning? We worked on that one. Look, I, Paul, he's like, tension getter here. Listen, if you tuned out, listen here. Paul, an apostle, a messenger of God, I say to you that if you accept circumcision, meaning if you turn to the law, if you trust in yourself to make yourself good enough for God, to make yourself right with God, to be accepted by God, if you trust in yourself, Christ will be of absolutely no advantage to you, he says. Back in chapter 2, he says, if you do this, it nullifies the grace of God. It might as well not have existed. It's as if Christ died for no purpose. And so he says it yet again in verses 3 and 4. He says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law, all 613 commands. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. He's like, you can't pick and choose the parts of the law that you like and the parts that you don't like. Right? The law is all or nothing. And he's like, and if you think, if you think God's going to accept you because you severed your foreskin, then you are severed from Christ. In fact, if you think God's going to accept you because of anything you've done, you've fallen away from the grace that he has given you, and you have submitted yourself yet again to a yoke of slavery. And he's like, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't turn, don't turn inward. And don't turn backward, but turn to God and trust in God. And so he says in verse 5 and 6, he says, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. He's showing us here how to stand firm, how to live in Christ, in the freedom secured by Christ. And he gives us four things here if we look at verse 5. Number one, he says, we live by the Spirit, don't we? We live by the Spirit. The law is no longer our guardian. The law is no longer our guide. Now the Spirit is. And that's what we're going to look at next week. But number two, we we live by faith, not by sight. Trusting in God, submitting to God, relying on God. He talks about how we live and he talks about how we wait. Number three, he says, we wait eagerly. We wait eagerly like a like a kid on Christmas Eve whose parents don't let them open presents on Christmas Eve but sleep through the night and open them on Christmas morning. It's that already not yet tension of they're already under the tree, they're already purchased, but I I don't yet know what they are. I do because I opened it up and I taped it back shut. You'll never know what I did, Mom. But technically, I don't yet know. And that gift that he says that we're waiting for, it is our eternal righteousness. It is is eternity, which is secured by Christ. And so we wait patiently. We wait actively in this life, not waiting for for Christ to rescue us from this world, but for him to return and the renewal of this world. And we wait eagerly for that. Come, Lord Jesus. 
But we also wait confidently, he says, because we wait with hope. Not, not crossing our fingers. No, but with a sense of assurance and certainty and conviction, knowing that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. And the thing is, the more we come to believe verse 5 to be true, the more we live out verse 6. Right? The more that we live by the Spirit and live by faith, the more we wait eagerly and actively and patiently and confidently, the more we live out our freedom, the more we express our faith. And how do we do that? He says in verse 6, through love. Love is how our faith is made visible. Love is what reveals our faith at work. Love is, is our faith being active, our faith living. Love should be our defining mark as followers of Jesus. Love is what defines us as the people of God and his family and sets us apart. Love, Jesus said, should be how the world identifies us as his followers. Love is our new Costco card, one that we carry everywhere, one that we can show everyone. But I wonder if we've lost our Costco card. Is love our defining mark? Is love of those that we like our defining mark? Is aggression our defining mark? Is selfishness our defining mark? What, what is it? I don't know some days, but I know what it's called to be. It's called to be love. I think we've forgotten that. And that's what was happening in Galatia. See, they, they knew this to be true at one time. They were living this out. They were loving one another when Paul left. But he says in verse 7, he says, you were running well. You were on the journey. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Paul knows. It's kind of a rhetorical question. This point here is like the Christian life, it is not a decision. It is a journey, isn't it? You don't just make a decision and accept Jesus into your heart call it a day. No, it is every day following Jesus, faithfully following the way of Jesus. And Paul, he helped get them started on this journey when he was there, when he was planning these churches. But now someone had come in and they had, they had cut them off. They were hindering their journey and they were leading them in a detour. They were, they were going the wrong way and taking them on another route, leading them further and further away from Jesus. And so he says in verse 8, this persuasion, it's not from him who calls you. And like, to these people, they, they felt like they were growing. They were adding more to Jesus. They were growing. They were learning. They were progressing. And while there was indeed movement in their journey, it was in the wrong way. It wasn't the Spirit leading them. It wasn't the way of Jesus. It wasn't God calling them. And he says in verse 9, he says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. How many bakers we got here? That's kind of what I thought. I knew we had one. We got two. God bless you. Leaven is that thing that makes the bread rise. It's what makes it go from a pita to bread, basically. Is that a fair assessment? It's like yeast. I still, I still couldn't figure it out. I looked at this up for like 10 minutes yesterday. I couldn't figure out, is yeast a type of leaven? Are leaven and yeast like cousins of each other? I don't know. Either way, they make the bread rise. 
And here's the thing about leaven. You sprinkle just a little bit. I don't know if you sprinkle it or it's drops or it's liquid. I don't know. Let's just metaphorically sprinkle it in the dough. I'm not one of these bakers, okay? I have been blessed by their baking. But you put just a little bit of leaven in that batch of dough and you mix it up and knead it, right? You knead dough. The K, I think. Kelsey's not giving me any feedback right now. Y'all fine? Okay. Don't let me lie to them. As you need it, it just spreads over everything. It's kind of like how if you take just one drop of red food coloring and you put it into a cup of water, you've turned water into wine. You haven't. You just made a cup of red water. But to them, see, it seemed like they were only making this slight little course correction. All right, they, they didn't reject Jesus. They're still trying to follow Jesus. They're just, they're just adding a little law to Jesus, a little law to the grace. Like, that can't be bad, can it? I mean, it's just keeping us in balance. It can't be bad. Pilots, uh, now we got like technology up the wazoo. Uh, but pilots have this rule of thumb uh, called the one in 60 rule. And the idea of the one in 60 rule is that if you are off course by just one degree, like if I stand here and I'm looking at you, and I look one degree off. Can you even tell that I changed? No. I'm looking right at you, too. It's really awkward when I do that, isn't it? Yeah. One degree. It's just tiny. It's almost insignificant. But if you're off by just one degree, after traveling for 60 miles, you are now one entire mile off course. And the further you go, the further off course you get. And that matters when you're trying to find a little island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, doesn't it? And we get easily distracted, don't we? Like you, you've been easily distracted since I started preaching this sermon. I can see all of you. Look at phone, coffee. You know what? I didn't get a Danish before I came in. That's okay. It's all good. You can watch the podcast later. But we're easily distracted. And we, we take our eyes off Jesus. Things, they draw our attention and our affection away. Squirrel! And then we start chasing those shiny objects, don't we? And that thing over there. We follow it. We chase it. We want it. And just like a little leaven leavens the whole lump, a seemingly insignificant detour can have absolutely devastating results in our life. And rather than leading us to intimacy with Jesus, it leads us further and further and further away from Jesus. And the same is true of sin. Sin never leads to God. Seldom has a preacher used the word never and always. Sin never leads you to God. It is never pleasing to God. And embracing just a little bit of sin, like a little bit of leaven, like a single drop of food coloring, if left unchecked and unrepented of, it will have devastating effects as it spreads and it stains, infecting and contaminating everything it touches. Right? Our hearts and our minds, our bodies, our systems, our institutions, the very ground that we walk on. Sin is never safe. Sin is never isolated. Sin never remains hidden. Sin is always brought into the light and it always destroys. Destroying you, destroying those around you, destroying the things you love, destroying your life, destroying your faith. And so he says in verse 10, after this warning, he says, but I have confidence in the Lord. I don't have confidence in you, but I got confidence in God 
that you will take no other view than the one that he has been preaching, and that the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Paul was confident that God would intervene in two ways. First, leading them to correct their course, repenting of their sin. But he was also confident that God would hold those who had hindered their journey accountable for their action, judging them for their sin. And he says in verse 11, you you can tell he's amped up right now because it's like every sentence feels like a total different direction. He says, but if I, brother, still preach circumcision... Why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Huh? You do that with Paul sometimes. Here's the thing. like, um, it, Obviously, Paul, at one time in his life, when he was a Jewish Pharisee, he was enforcing circumcision on men. But that was before his encounter with Jesus on the Damascus Road, before that story he tells us in chapters 1 and 2. He's not still doing that. But now these Jewish Christian outsiders that have come in, it's likely, we're not totally certain, but it is likely that they're, they're accusing Paul of being sort of an inconsistent hypocrite. Like you used to teach us, but now you don't. You're, you're only going around preaching what people want to hear. It's, it's fun to sit in church when, when you open God's word and it tells you exactly what you wanted to hear. When you open it up and it says, today is going to be a beautiful day and there's going to be a rainbow but no, no rain. And there's going to be puppy dogs all around you. And you're going to have lots of tacos and pizza, but your metabolism magically goes up. That would be a beautiful passage to preach from. They were accusing Paul of preaching grace rather than law simply to build a platform, simply to gain attention. They're like, this faith in Jesus makes us family? That is bogus. It is not faith. It is faith in law. There's more you've got to do. Like, we got to have rules. If we don't have rules, there'll be chaos. And so Paul's response is like, who persecutes someone for preaching the message they want to hear? If I preach you tacos and pizza, who's going to get mad at me? You should get mad at me because we should be preaching scripture. That's just a little, making sure you're paying attention. No, Paul, Paul's being persecuted for removing the barriers that divided what Christ had united. Barriers that separated Jew and Greek, slave and free, male and female, he said. Similar to those who who preached for the abolition of slavery in the 19th century. Similar to those who preached against segregation in the 20th century. Similar to those who continue to preach the words of Micah 6a to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with God. And preach against things like legalism, nationalism, fundamentalism today. Those things that only enslave us with more and more rules adding to what God has given us. And so we talk about those things, don't we? And I know at times it can feel a little uncomfortable, some of the things we talk about. My 10-year-old son just read circumcision 18 times and emasculate, so he learned last night what emasculate means. We talk about things that I think can make us feel uncomfortable at times. Uh, Things that I think you might think, Pastor Ash, that's too political. I know you think that because some of you have told me that. 
But here's the thing, I firmly believe that there is no topic, there is no aspect of Scripture that should not be viewed through the lens of Scripture, amen? No topic, no aspect of culture that we should not view through the lens of Scripture. And that means there's no topic or aspect of culture that we shouldn't talk about in a church or address from the pulpit. I don't think there is anything that is too political. We can be partisan. Just so we're on the same page, I've separated those phrases in my mind. There's nothing too political, but we can't be too partisan. No topics off limits. I think that's what Paul's getting at here. Because he did not preach from the entirety of Scripture, of our freedom in Christ, our liberation from the burden of making ourselves acceptable to God, whether it's by the Mosaic law, by some church's law, by someone else's law, or even your own law. That burden of making yourself acceptable to God, it would be to remove the offensiveness of the cross. Because that's exactly what the gospel is, isn't it? It is offensive. We, we dare not preach it offensively, but it in and of itself is offensive. Because what it is, the gospel, scripture, it acts as a mirror, doesn't it? It acts as a mirror, and we'd like to think it's one of those wavy mirrors that distorts the version, the vision of us, but it doesn't. It's a very crystal clear mirror, and we are seeing ourselves. It's reflecting our true selves that we often don't want to see, and it's showing our need for a Savior to do what we are incapable of doing, to set us free. That's the good news of the gospel. And and so to those that are preaching a different gospel, those that are enslaving God's people, those that are hindering their growth, Paul says in verse 12, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Paul, we're in church. What he's saying here is like, okay, you want to do circumcision? Great. Why stop at cutting off your foreskin? You might as well go all the way. Go big or go home, guys. I've been really trying to work through how to say this in case there were kids in the room. He's alluding here to Deuteronomy 23.1, which, and I'm going to use God's words, not mine. Deuteronomy 23.1, it prohibits men whose testicles were crushed, ouch, whose male organs were cut off. It prohibited them from entering the assembly of the Lord. They couldn't come in. They couldn't gather. And Paul, he doesn't, he doesn't mean this literally. He's not like daring them to emasculate themselves. Now, there's a bit of an alliterative play here on the words. Uh, emasculate and hinder in the original Greek are kind of a, an alliteration together. Hinder back in verse 7. So what he's saying here, he's saying those who hinder you, who cut off your freedom in Christ, they should be emasculated and cut off from fellowship in Christ. Have nothing to do with them. Get them out of here. Shut the door. Don't let them back in. That's what Paul said to legalists and fundamentalists 2,000 years ago. I love how Dr. Scott McKnight summarizes this. He says, whatever cuts into the freedom of God's spirit needs to be cut out. If it cuts in, cut it out. Because in Christ, we are free from the burden of fulfilling anyone's law to be accepted by God. And here's number two. In Christ, we are free from the bondage of sin. We are free from the bondage of sin. Freedom, remember, it's a balancing act. We're a little wobbly. And while we've seen how easy it is to fall to one side, losing our freedom and submitting again to a yoke of slavery, it's just as easy to fall to the other side of this this tightrope that it feels like we're walking and abuse our freedom. 
right? We can lose it and we can abuse it. And so he says in verse 13, he opens saying, for you were called to freedom, brothers. He's kind of repeating verse one, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Now flesh here, it's, he's not referring to our physical flesh, our physical body. He's not referring to some sort of dualism where body's bad, spirit's good. No, he's referring here to our sinful nature. That sin, sin doesn't just describe what we do, it describes who we are. We are born into the sinful nature, born enslaved to sin. And that means our, our natural sinful desire is for things that are contrary to God, to his word and to his will. But just as Christ freed us from the burden of the law, he also freed us from the bondage to sin. And this, notice, this wasn't a freedom that we found This wasn't a freedom that we fought for. This wasn't a freedom that we created on our own. No, it was a freedom that we are called to by God. Securing this freedom for us. Breaking the chains that enslave us. But how? The same way he freed us from the burden of the law. He opened his letter in chapter 1, verse 4, saying that Jesus gave himself for our sins. He gave his life for our freedom. And so through his sacrificial death, paying our debt and atoning for our sin and through his victorious resurrection, defeating death and conquering sin. And now those in Christ, our chains are gone. We've been set free. That is the good news of the gospel. That sin that is weighing on you, that is pressing on you, that it feels like you are never going to be able to shake, you have been set free from that in Christ. It no longer owns you. It no longer enslaves you. You can't pick the lock, though. Only Jesus can. And he has. We are free. But to modify the words of Uncle Ben to his nephew Peter Parker, with great freedom comes great responsibility. This freedom that God has given us, it is not absolute. It is not unlimited. God has established boundaries on that freedom. He's put limits in place on what we are allowed to do based on what is best for us. And there are then consequences for breaking those boundaries. There are consequences for our sin. Yet, even in Christ, there's still a bit of us that's prone to abuse that freedom, isn't there? To reject God's authority from time to time kind of blow past those boundaries rather than living freely within those boundaries. Using freedom as an opportunity to sin and an excuse to indulge in our sinful nature. But instead of abusing that freedom that God has given us, he has called us to steward that freedom and to use that freedom. He goes on in verse 13 saying, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, and that word is love. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, if you continue to divide what Christ has united, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. We don't fulfill the law by cutting off a part of our body, by not eating certain foods, and by observing certain holidays, but by loving one another serving one another, expressing our faith, living out of that freedom and living our faith. Love is the defining mark of God's people, of us as followers of Jesus. Jesus said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 
okay, that's not bad. This room's good. These are, these are decent people. I can love these people most of the time, at least in my section, my row. But he didn't stop there, did he? Jesus didn't call us to just love other Christians that we like. No, he, he called us to love our neighbor and to love our neighbor the way we love ourselves, to love everyone that God has placed in our lives. But Jesus didn't stop there. He says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor. Yeah. And you've heard it said, hate your enemy. Yeah. But he says, I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. There's no one left now. Everyone is loved. Nobody is excluded from the love we are called to share because no one is excluded from the love that God shares. Right? For God so loved the what? The world that he gave his only begotten son that who should ever believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And so how do we know what love looks like? Not by watching a rom-com, not by going to Hallmark. We know what love looks like by looking at Jesus who loved you and gave himself up for you. That means that rather than a sign of defeat and humiliation, the cross is a sign of victory and of love. And when we look at that cross, Leon Morris, he writes, we know love only because we see it on the cross. And I love this part. To see this love, to look at Jesus upon the cross is to be affected by this love. This love transforms us. This love frees us. This love fills us with God's spirit, enabling us and empowering us to love. It means that to truly live in freedom is to love because freedom in Christ leads to loving others. That is the natural result of this freedom. Loving others the way Christ loves us, this sacrificial love that lays down one's life metaphorically and literally, if necessary, for the good of others, who looks out for the good of others. We respond to this love that God has poured out on us by reflecting this love. And not just feeling this love for those that we deem lovely, but expressing this love for those whom God loves, which is everyone, for everyone is created in the image of God. Love is why Jesus came. Love is why Jesus died. Love is what we have been freed to do. In Christ, we are free. We are free to love the way God loves. We are free to live the way that God created you to live, free of the bondage of sin, because in Christ, you are forgiven of sin, freed from the power of sin. And in Christ, you are free to be whom God created you to be, free of the burden to make yourself enough for God or anyone else, because in Christ, you are a child of God, his beloved and adopted son and daughter, loved by the heavenly Father. In Christ, we are free. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.